It is wonderful to be back here with you this morning. I'm happy to give Eric a break um, as they have a little jubilee with them and get this time of rest. Um, We're going to be continuing our series about glory descending. We saw the first week how glory descends in the person of Christ. And we saw how glory descends in the message of Christ. And then last week, we saw how glory descends in the work of Christ. Um, And how every single one of these things is sort of this downward condescension on God's part to reveal more about who he is, his love for us, what he has done to redeem us and bring us back into relationship with him. So now with this uh, final uh, sermon of this series, we're going to be looking at our response. How do we respond to God? What does God want us to do in light of everything that he has done in the person and work and message of Christ? So the text we're going to be looking at today comes from Philippians 3, and I think we have it as verses 7 through 11. Listen, this is the word of the Lord. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we have a passage like this that instructs us on how we should respond to what you have done in your Son about how you have gone and redeemed us and have given us a righteousness, not our own, but on account of Christ and what he has done. I pray, Lord, that you will just soften our hearts, sharpen our minds to your word, that it will transform us by these glorious truths and these riches, and that you will align my human word to your divine word. And if I should say anything not from you, that you will close my mouth or silence the ears of those listening, that we will be edified and that we will see you in a new way. And we pray these things in your most precious name. Amen. This passage here is probably one of the most autobiographical passages we see of the Apostle Paul's life. Where he talks about how he views um, his former life of Judaism as a Pharisee. And contrasts that to the life he has now in faith in Christ. So we're going to be looking at sort of this contrast between faith and works this morning and what God expects, what God wants of us in light of what he has done. So we're going to be looking at it broadly under the comfort of works, the burden of faith, and the beauty of failure. The comfort of works, the burden of faith, and the beauty of failure. Now, I think like Paul, so much of the human race, us included, are so inclined to want to work, to have this idea that we could have this ultimate standard that is both a means of acceptance and also a means by which we could exclude others. We like to have the standard set up so that we know where we stand kind of against everyone else. We know kind of where we are, how good we are performing, and then we also like to say, that others aren't performing to the same standard. And what's interesting is that we don't just do this with religion. I think that that you see 
this idea of works appearing in three main areas. The first one is religious. The second one is social. And the third one is personal. Now, every religion in the world has this idea of works. What you must do so that God will accept you. The requirement, what God requires of you. That if we follow all the rules, all the ordinances, all the institutions, all the even cultural expressions, that God will accept us. But it's not just religious, it's also social as well. I think uh, one of the interesting things in coming to um, Portland uh, from the Bible Belt, Charlotte, North Carolina, is that even though Portland is not religious, I would argue that it is every bit as legalistic as the South. Because there are all these assumptions about how you must live here. That, you know, everything needs to be organic. You must recycle or else, you know, God forbid somebody sees you put glass, which goes in the yellow bin, in the green bin, and then they won't pick up your recycling, which happens to me last week. Um, and, then, and then even just the idea of how we treat coffee. Um, back then in the South, I mean, going to Starbucks was a cool, hit place, and the coffee was great. But here it's like, uh, I mean, I'm hiding my Starbucks cups if I have them in my car and don't want anyone to see them because that's not as cool as Stumptown or anywhere else. And it's amazing that as a society that we do this. We set up these level of works. But it's not just religious, not just social. We do this personally as well. We think that if I have the perfect job, if I have this standard, that I need this job, I will be happy. Or that if my family looks a certain way, that I will be happy. Or if I looked a certain way, had a certain body type. But what happens? What happens if we have all these? If we reach this level of fulfilling these works, this standard, that if we have this best family, come from the best area, come from the best society, have the best religion, best education, all the way down, what would that look like? Well, that was the Apostle Paul. That was how he lived. Um, and we see that in the previous section, how he gives us sort of this resume about his life, about how he, he fulfilled this idea of works. Um, look at verse 3 through 6. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What Paul says is that he lived this entire life of works in the first century. He nailed it on the religious aspect. He was part of the most elite tribe of Israel and that he was perfect, had the best education that we read about in Acts, so on. He was fulfilling all of these things. But what's interesting is that that was not enough. The result of works like these, though we could attain the certain level of perfection, think that we arrived here, at the very end of the day, those works come to an end on earth. And it is a cycle that is never complete, and it is never satisfying. Um, and it's not just Paul who dealt with that, 
But even nowadays, how many people do we look at and just idolize, be like, man, if I was like them for just a little bit, I would be so much more happier than I am now. But it's not. I mean, listen to this interview on 60 Minutes with um, New England Patriot quarterback Tom Brady, who is a fantastic athlete. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't all it's cracked up to be. So then the interviewer asked him, what's the answer? Brady replied, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Then he's asked, which of the rings do you like the best? What's your favorite ring? How does Brady respond? My favorite ring, I've always said, is the next one. The next one is the best. Our drive for works ultimately will drive us to a place of needing to be perfect, of driving us to this idea of perfectionism. And that perfectionism will only take us to two places, either despair or pride. This place of despair where we realize that we can't fulfill this standard put upon us, that the burden is too hard, that I'm not able to do it enough. Uh, One of my friends uh, was telling me that this is a very common thing in Ivy League schools. Now, it's probably no surprise to you that I myself am not an Ivy League graduate, Um, but he is. He's smart enough to do that, and he graduated from Cornell. And what he was saying was that Cornell itself um, had a very interesting sort of culture there because the only reason you go to Cornell is if you don't get into Harvard or MIT or Yale. So what that does to the students there is that they're automatically working with this understanding that I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to get into those places, so I had to settle for this Ivy League school here, Cornell. Um, But what's interesting is that the type of despair it creates in the students there. Cornell has the highest suicide rate in its student population out of every Ivy League school. Now for them, they think, because I can't, I cannot reach this goal of going to Harvard or MIT or Yale that what I want, that future job won't be open for me. That future is closed for me. There's nothing else. But if it doesn't bring us to a place of despair, it brings us sort of to the opposite, this place of pride, overwhelming pride, where we realize, I can do this. How come you can't? where you look around and you see that people aren't as spiritual as you are. People aren't as educated as you are. People aren't as driven as you are. People aren't as able as you. And ultimately, you see everyone as resources to help you achieve your goal. That you need these people to just help you achieve your works. And it's almost this weird almost two places that you could be, either at this place where you just feel like a doormat and you just can't do anything and people walk all over you, or this place of overwhelming pride and you treat everybody else like a doormat and walk over them. And think about how damaging this is on our relationships. For your wife, if she can't fulfill your expectations, you view her poorly, maybe disdain her, just 
be upset with her that she can't fulfill your needs, that if she was like you, she could do better. Or with our kids, how many times do we do this with our kids? And that we want our kids to be perfect, to vindicate us as the perfect parent, that we need them to perform a certain way, act a certain way, so that we will feel better about ourselves. Or coworkers, or maybe fellow people in the congregation. I know even as I get ready to go plant in Corvallis, it'll be something that I struggle with, that as I have a church plant, I'll look at it and be like, oh, how come we're not the big, vibrant, missionally-minded group that I want us to be and wanting to get my identity from them, and it's wrong. It's putting an expectation on them that is not right, that is not loving, that doesn't minister to them. But what was it with Paul? Because with Paul, it's interesting. Paul achieved this place of works. He was in this place of pride, um, and it didn't lead him to an overwhelming guilt. It didn't lead him to this place of brokenness. So many times we tend to think that uh, and read the life of Martin Luther, where Martin Luther looked at all these laws, all this standard that he had to live up to, and just felt this overwhelming burden. And we tend to think that that's what Paul did, but for Paul it wasn't. We don't see a life of guilt there. Um, we see that he felt like he had it, but he left it all. And what was it that made him leave it? Well, it was Christ. Seeing this exalted picture of the risen Lord, the righteousness, what Christ has accomplished, all the works that he has accomplished. And he gave up this comfort of works that he had for ultimately this burden of faith. Let us reread verses 7 through 9. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Look at how amazing that is, that he talks about how he suffered the loss of all things. It is hard that when we are living an idea of works, that I can live up to the standard, and you have achieved that standard, how much it hurts to walk away from it. He suffered that walking away from it so that he could have faith in Christ. And one theologian talks about this. Um, This concept of faith is what makes Christianity both the easiest religion in the world and also the hardest. It is the easiest because all it demands is that we come to God with open hands. But it is the hardest thing in the world to truly open our hands to God and let go of all those things that we find comfort in, all those things that satisfy us, all those things that give us an identity. He demands faith. He wants us to go to him in faith. That is the proper response. That is the proper response. It's not works. It's faith. And now faith is not an abstract thing. It's not an ambiguous thing. Just last week, I was in a coffee shop talking to someone, and they were talking about how they have faith in faith. I don't even know what that means. It's not something ambiguous like that. It's deeply personal. It's deeply relational. The way that our standards define it is that faith is an accepting and a receiving and a resting in Christ. It's personal. What saves isn't faith. It's not a faith in faith. What faith is, 
is it's the nature of faith is to receive something. It's an instrument. We are saved by what our faith receives. For example, um, I don't, I, I, my car keys. Just having car keys does me no good. If I hold on to car keys, I pretty much walk around as fast as if I don't have car keys. But if I have those car keys and put them in the ignition and go around, I could travel all the way from southeast Portland to Hillsborough in a morning. No problem. And that's what faith is like. What faith is, is it's this instrument whereby we receive Christ. We cling to him. We accept him. We rest in him. And the amazing thing about our faith is that our faith may not be perfect. Our faith may be weak. Our faith may be defiled, contaminated by sinful impulses, have all these misconceptions. But what makes faith in Jesus Christ so amazing is that despite how imperfect and lacking our faith may be, the object of our faith is absolutely perfect. And that's the amazing thing about faith is that it's deeply personal and that the object of our faith is perfect. And that it's, it's relational. I mean, that's how Paul talks about it here in verse 8. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This faith isn't just cognitive. It's not academic. It's not merely just intellectual. It's personal. It's relational. And yet so many times we think that we have to do those other things to boost our faith. Oh, my faith is weak. I better just go read a book. Or my faith is just weak. I just need to do X, Y, Z. And we don't just set our hearts, our affections, our minds on Christ. And that's the amazing thing about faith is that true faith would always challenge us, will always transform us and transform those around us. I mean, when we have a relationship with Christ because of faith, it truly is more gratifying than a life of sin. It's more freeing and assuring than the comfort we can find in works. A relationship with Christ pulls us out of despair, and a relationship with Christ conquers our pride. A relationship with Christ is the only thing that will satisfy either the person who seeks their identity by works or the person who feels squashed by the burden of works. A relationship with Christ brings about the deepest acceptance of both ourselves and the way that we could accept others. In this way, it makes it so incredibly scandalous, even, um, where we don't view others for the re- for as resources, as what we could receive from them. We love them for who they are as image bearers. Um, I, I love this scene in um, this book by Anne Lamott, Traveling Mercies, where she talks about this story of a newcomer to her church, Ken, this man who is suffering from AIDS and has lost his partner to the same disease, and that a few weeks after the funeral... Um, Ken told them that after Brandon died, Jesus slid into the hole in his heart that Brandon's loss left and had been there ever since. And he says that he would gladly pay any price for what he has now, which is Jesus and us. But it goes on. She also tells about this woman at the church, Renola, who is large and beautiful and jovial and black and as devout could be. Now, Renola had these difficulties in accepting Ken and kept him at a distance. And after a year of standing back, not accepting him, and looking at him in his broken condition, unable to stand, 
during this time of worship, they started singing the first song, and she looked over at him. They continued singing the second song, and there he was, singing vigorously from his seated position, that she went over to him, held him up like a rag doll next to his side, and both of them together, worshiping Jesus as Lord. That's the type of community that happens when faith is there. When we realize that it's not just about what we can do, what we offer to people, what other people offer to us, but that we can love them, accept them, worship Jesus together alongside them, even in a way that is so uncomfortable and so counterintuitive to this world. Society as itself would look at this, and, and indeed it's beautiful, but so much of our society would not appreciate that, would not like it. But that's, that's the type of community that the church does. That's the type of community that God wants to see the gospel reflected in, the people of God here. It's the most subversive, upside-down picture of what the world needs and of what God wants us to do. And that's what makes it so challenging. That's what makes faith in that way a burden, is that it cuts right to our core, cuts right past all of our actions, cuts right to our heart and the affections of our heart. But it's also not only challenging, but there is a certain beauty in the type of world that a faith, that a faith is prominent, creates. This beauty of failure. And that's because there's freedom. We are freed from the burden of works. Um, I recently listened to an episode of This American Life, and it was focused on this young woman named Sarah. And she was talking about her family's very public fall from grace, that she had grown up in a very, very privileged family, enormous house, beautiful clothes, expensive schools, country club memberships. Both her and her mom drove these beautiful new Porsches, and despite all these outward signs of success, her home was marked by constant pressure to keep up this family image. They had this standard, this family image that they need to live to. The rules were very important. Etiquette was very important. And the dad had this insane temper that when he drove home in the Porsche, Sarah, when she heard the rumble of the Porsche, would go hide in her room because she would be terrified that her dad would find maybe a gum wrapper in the couch or something like that. But one night, they called this family meeting, and this all came to a screeching halt. Sarah thought that this was the fateful day that the children had done something very wrong and they would have to pay for it. But rather, the father started weeping and saying what he did was very wrong and they were all going to have to pay for it. It turns out that that most of the money that they had had been embezzled from a trust fund from one of his disabled clients. Her father wept on a couch as he confessed all of his wrongdoing to his children and said, we are going to have to start over. We are going to have to rebuild our lives. He was disbarred from practicing law, and they had to sell their home, their Porsches. All of their family friends disowned them. And even Sarah's mother had to go back to work, changing sheets at a nursing home and serving as a janitor in their Baptist church. Yet, in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this debt, this way of life, this security, this wealth, this achievement, this identity, a beautiful new way of life was being born. Sarah said, my dad instantly became better. He was happy. He chewed gum, uh, which never happened before. He wasn't such a jerk all the time. 
And my mom, her transformation was amazing. She packed bag lunches for, for homeless people who lived under the bridge. She went to Rwanda during the genocide. She even let a homeless guy named Earl live with us once, and it turned out he was a fugitive, we found out later. But who are we to judge? I mean, really, who are we to judge? It turned out that the failure of this family to live this, this life of works was this family's gateway to freedom. And that's one of the most amazing things. We see in the Apostle Paul's life, indeed, his greatest failure was his success. That it was in his success he realized paled in comparison to the success of Christ. And God gives us Christ's success, what he achieved by faith. That this righteousness that he gives us is an infinite one, an eternal one, and even transformative in this life. I mean, look at how, well, we saw how Paul viewed his life in verses 3 through 6. Look at how he views his life now. Um, verse 9, he has this new status. He is in Christ. Paul's identity no longer was based on what he could accomplish, but based on what Christ accomplished. That every religious requirement was fulfilled in Christ. That he had this new relationship. It wasn't just knowing about Jesus as the Messiah, but it was truly just knowing Jesus. It was so personal and profound. And it was transformative of his relationship with God. It was direct. It was personal. He was the mediator. Christ was the mediator. And it was so personal that it transformed his life. Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He, Paul knew everything in his life was an opportunity, for better or worse, to understand the depth, the pain, the love, the victory of the Incarnation. And we receive this. We receive all of these things in our life because Christ has achieved it to us. Well, look at the next verse, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We aren't perfect, but him, he who holds us, is perfect. And I love this word play there that Paul uh, uses. And, and this is the only translation that really brings it out. I can't make it my own, but he has made me my own. Christ kept every religious requirement of the law and perfectly fulfilled it so that I could be accepted. Christ lived marginally and loves the marginalized so that even if you feel like society doesn't accept you, you know God does. You are worth the incarnation to him. That Christ lived a perfect life so you are free from the despair or, or pride or guilt of your own life. And that all is and all that God requires, all that we need to do to respond to it is faith. And accepting, receiving, and resting in him who has made you his own. By coming to his own, living amongst his own, loving his own, and ultimately dying for his own. And all he requires in this, as a response from us, is faith, not works. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is amazing that you have every right, every right to demand perfection from us. But you don't tell us we need to be perfect. Instead, you tell us to have faith in Christ who was perfect, that we receive his perf perfect record. I pray, Lord, 
that you will grow our faith, that even if it is weak, even if it is small, that it is enough. I pray that even during this season where we celebrate the incarnation, what you have done, that we will understand more about the faith you you require from us, that it will transform not only our own lives, but our families, our neighborhoods, our churches, our city, and this nation. And we pray these things in your most precious name. Amen.